podcast this week, it's another sensational hat trick of guests as we venture to the Royal Hotel with director Kitty Green, go bottoms up with that film's director Emma Seligman, and have a natter with Patrick Stewart about his new memoir. Now that's what we call a sensational Patrick of guests. Oh, <laughs> All that unusual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that if it doesn't input those numbers... It won't make much, much of, of a, a difference. difference. Oh. Oh. oh, Dawn, I'll cry. Be warned, there may be a lot of Chandler quotes this week. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, I'm not in the grey depressing pod booth. I'm in my grey depressing <laughs> bedroom slash office uh, because I couldn't make it in today. But thanks to the magic of modern technology, I am here. And in the grey depressing pod booth are my three colleagues of such lethal cunning Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Hello. And the greatest butcher of, in all of Middlesbrough, <laughs> Sophie Butcher. Hello. How are you all? Yeah, good. I've, I've just had uh, a few days uh, going around the sights of London with my small niece and nephew. Aww. So I am, I am thoroughly cultured up. As Did long you as go into culture... the map? <laughs> yes. Were you West, Mr. Krabby? We travelled by map. We actually did go to what my niece and nephew insisted on calling Andy's Museum, which is the Natural History Museum, which features in a show called Andy's Dinosaurs, I have oh. learned. And we had to go and see Andy's clock. Andy himself was, for some reason, not available. He must have been tra- time travelling to meet dinosaurs that day. I don't know. Ooh. I'm a bit hazy on the details. Well, there we go. <laughs> London, of course, is where the greatest love story of the 20th century first began Chandler mm-hmm. and Monica oh, <laughs> oh. We should, we, we, I think we should talk let's talk Matthew Perry now shall we well I've yeah, never done that now. with you before <laughs> <laughs> well you've never talked to Chandler and Monica no, no, no never <laughs> never with you yeah <laughs> so sad I mean this is obviously the, the news that Matthew Perry Chandler in Friends passed away this week at the age of just 54 mm. and uh, I have to say guys this one hurt. This one hit me where it hurt. Mm, yeah, me too. I think it's because they're always there for yeah. us, in fact. But they really are because it's the only sitcom, the only show, I think, that spans generations the way that this one does. In that there are kids now, there are tweens now discovering friends for the first time because it's obviously streaming on Netflix uh, in a way that I don't think they do with with any other show. To, to be... You know, for Gen X's, for Millennials, for Gen Zers, for whatever the current crop of kids are called, Alpha. ev- Alphas. There you go. All of them Alphas? know and love. Fr- I mean, that's problematic, but they all of them know and love Friends, and which is why it's so strange when you see the actors who play them now looking their actual ages, because they are frozen in their twenties for all time in all mm. of our minds. And I can't think of any other show like that. Mm. I mean, I used to watch Friends on a loop, maybe for for a good decade of my life it was just like my background viewing it was what I put on when I came in and what I put on to go to sleep to Mm. I've gone to sleep to it multiple multiple times Um, and I hadn't watched it in quite a while actually but then I started a rewatch at the weekend after the news and it still even though I know every line inside out it still feels so fresh when you start it again and you realise it's so funny Mm. and they're all so good and Matthew Perry is so good um Chandler was always my favourite and I was really, really sad about this. Mm. It was always the, the I mean, the, the timing was yeah. just, I mean, they're all, look, they all have great comic timing. Of course, yeah. But his his really was exceptionally, exceptionally good. And um, and I think 
kind of crept up on me in terms of being the funniest one of the lot. Mm. I, I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't love him in the first season. I sometimes find him grating. I was very young. That's interesting. But, but he really just kept being so good and grew as a character as well. Like there was development there. There was yeah. mature, maturation, mm. you know, and, and I think that um, made him, you know, one of the best of the lot that way. He, uh, yeah, just a great guy. Even when he turned up in things, you were always like, oh, yay, it's Chandler. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously Matthew Perry, but it's Chandler too. I- I talk about this a lot on Monday's Pilot TV, which we've already recorded, but genuinely so I think with Chandler, first of all, I think without Matthew Perry, more than any other character, the show wouldn't have been the hit that it was, mm-hmm. certainly early on, because he, I think the first two seasons in particular, carried the show, like in terms of the writing for his character was incredible, mm-hmm. and his delivery and his performance was amazing. I think it's as iconic. The- yeah, absolutely yeah. iconic. And there was nothing else like him, that kind of sort of world-weary sarcasm, sort of quick-wittedness. But as the show went on, I think that character got slightly blunted and the writing wasn't quite as sharp. And mm. at that point, I think Joey and Ross took on a lot more of the comedic heavy lifting, especially the physical comedy. Uh, but then that might have been partly indicative of the difficulties that Perry himself was going through. Yeah. And it might have been, you know, writing to it. It's hard to say exactly. But I definitely think early on, absolute nailed on MVP. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think that there was a, a period, the, the the latter stages of Friends, I struggled to think of a great Chandler storyline and a great Chandler episode. But I think going up to probably season seven, it's it's not the Chandler show by any stretch of the imagination, but there are so many great Chandler moments, there are so many great Chandler episodes. I think season five, um, my wife and I were revisiting a bunch of episodes from seasons four and five this week after the, the news about Matthew Perry broke. Uh, just revisiting some of our favorite Chandler <laughs> moments, and there's so many through season yeah. four and five. Yeah. It's so interesting to me. Like you could argue that yeah, you know, Chandler did lose some of his edge uh, as the show went on, but it, uh, the Chandler and Monica relationship is, for me, like a kind of textbook uh, approach to these things. I'm like, you know, there's lots of talk in, mm. in in you know long running shows about you know will they won't days and mm. you know keeping the spark alive, and and certainly I think you know Ross Rachel was just flogged beyond an inch of its life in that show and Chandler Monica just came out of nowhere just yeah. absolutely out yeah. of nowhere yeah. and then became the kind of rock upon which the show mm. stood and yeah. season five you know all that stuff where they're trying to keep their relationship secret <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile Ross they is having know, this, this we know, meltdown we know. <laughs> yeah precisely that episode is so amazing and into season into season six, uh, which is great, you know the 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 episode where they finally get engaged is genuinely moving. Mm. But there are yeah. so many wonderful moments. But his his comic timing was from the gods. There were lots of stories this week about how basically the role was him. Mm. You know, like you know, it's like the the it's like Tony Stark and RDJ. The the line between where Chandler ended, Matthew Perry began, and vice versa was was really blurry. Uh, that he would he couldn't do the role initially back when it was called Friends Like Us. He was committed to another sitcom, mm-hmm. um, and but he was basically coaching everyone else who was up for the <laughs> role on how to play it, including the guy who was ultimately offered it, Craig Bierko. Um, who ended up? He was the bad guy in the Long Kiss Goodnight, um, yeah. and then and then things. I think the the sitcom he was committed to fell through, and then suddenly he was available and he could do it. And you know, there's something about it, you know, there's something about his this, his sense of humor, the way he comported himself, the way he used humor as a defense mechanism. I think a lot of people like me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, to him. <laughs> sorry, sorry, people, Chris, I interrupted you there. I I spoke over you. Uh, will you marry me? 
I, I think we saw a lot of ourselves in him, apart from the fact that he was much, much better looking than, <laughs> than I will ever be. But this is the you thing, know, though. You, you could see that. He was like your funniest friend that you mm. know is always, you know, he always witty, is always making you laugh. He was like that, but like dialed all the way up in just yeah. the best way. Um, and I really loved his arc throughout the whole thing. He had the best arc, I think, because he turned from this sort of commitment phobe, judgmental person and through falling in love with Monica and all of that they like you say they became the rock in such a way that you never really questioned that they were going to like break up that was never a thing but they the development of their marriage was still so so interesting and how um, they challenged each other but still loved each other and it became such a comforting part of that show much better than the the Ross and Rachel thing um, mm. could have been for me personally that, that that's the coupling that really really made it really made me love it anyway. I went back and revisited a couple of episodes this week. Uh, which ones did you revisit? Because I revisited the one um, where they go to go to Vegas and he <laughs> meets uh, and Joey's there and Joey's pretending to be, you know, Joey's movie's fallen through so now mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a centurion. And then Joey finds his identical hand twin. Yes. He's played yes. by Thomas Lennon. <laughs> Amazing. Who, of course, starred alongside Matthew Perry in the Odd Couple remake that they did for a couple of seasons. This is uh, my <laughs> hand and this <laughs> is your hand. hand. No, wait, no way, that's my hand. hand. <laughs> no way, that's your hand. And uh, one of the things I love about Chandler is that he has this wonderful friendship with Joey, yeah. but yeah. he also has nothing but barely disguised disdain for him <laughs> at various points. And and probably my favourite line reading in all of Friends, apart from Pivot! Which is the uh, one that I revisited this week. It is, is uh, when Joey, <laughs> Joey explains to him that he's found this identical hand twin and he's going to be a millionaire. And Chandler is lying on the bed in their hotel room and he's flumped down in the bed and he just, and he is so moved into action by, by, by uh, Joey's stupidity that he kind of drags himself up out of his bed and just goes across him and goes, how? <laughs> and, and Joey goes, so I got my identical hand to it. I'm going to be a millionaire. And he explains it to him. And Chandler goes, again, I must go back to how. And it's just, it's one of my favorite things. I love it so much. He, oh my God, he was amazing. What about I you guys? S- I saw lots of clips going around um, that I was enjoying this weekend. I um, People were giving a lot of love for the Chandler-Rachel storylines, which were always really good. So when he set her up <laughs> with someone, she's like, you're not supposed to tell the guy that. Um, and when they share the cheesecake, um, that cheesecake episode yeah. is really good. <laughs> um, and she bats the cheesecake out of his hand. Um Chandra um, and Rachel, that is a yeah. relatively open weave and I can still see your <laughs> nippular areas. <laughs> oh, God, I've forgotten about that one. Yeah. And when he, um, Chandler and Phoebe, like when he's singing um, Endless Love with the um, vinyl, he's like sat yeah. in that sting at the end of that episode and then Phoebe comes in and they sing it together. Oh, when Phoebe tries to seduce him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. One of oh, the boy. most amazingly awkward sequences ever. It's just <laughs> glorious. What about the uh, flashbacks with the haircut? Oh, oh, flock of seagulls. God. Flock of seagulls. <laughs> I mean, it takes a brave man to wear that hair. Rolling that the was, sleeves up. And the moustache. And the moustache. Oh, no. Oh. And getting this toe cut off by Monica. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and when he gets his nubinectomy, he's like, oh, my God, the source of all my power. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's amazing. That whole he, sequence with um, the girl in the power cut 
when he says gum would yes. be perfection. And he's like, Jill 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 with Paolo. Yeah. <laughs> and the cat. And the cat. <laughs> I could oh, have a so cat. Oh, I could talk about it's him so all good. day. We could, in yeah. fact, quote him all day. We could. We should uh, We should um, make a little love. <laughs> Do a little dance. Make Jump, a little love. Jump get, get down, down tonight. tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Never not funny. Oh my God, funny. he was amazing. Brought and, so uh, much joy to so many people. Yeah. And I know he says in his book that he kind of would prefer it if friends were not the first line in his obituary. Mm. But also, he knew it would be. Yeah. It's such a yeah. comfort and like you say, a joy to so many people like and will continue to be mm. yeah. for really For generations to come, I, potentially. I never read his book, but I'm going to. But um, just mm. knowing like friends is, is always there for you, like yeah. you say, and he will always be there. It's really special. So that you can it always is. revisit yeah. him in that way. And, and you know, I know he was proud of his, his work for, you know, helping drug addicts, That's helping right. people yeah. get through the most difficult times in their lives. But Friends does that too. It, it, does. Way, it really you know, does. It, it mm. Maybe on a lower level, maybe, but, but for more people. So mm. it is also a value. And I hope that he, I hope that he felt that. Yeah. As well as being proud of his sort of one-on-one um, work for and, and not just one on one, but also setting up centres and so on, and, and working with mm. people who needed it. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, it, it's. I don't think it's any shade on him or any shame that that friends does come up so high, um, yeah. because it, it is something to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Very much so. agreed. Should we have a listener question, folks? Sure, mm-hmm. certainly. Okay, our listener question comes from K McNulty Muck on Twitter and. They ask, if you had a magic wand, mm. what one thing would you make Marvel do next? <laughs> yes, I would be using my magic wand to, to figure out Marvel, for sure. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we're talking MCU, right? Um, I'd make more magic wands. Yeah, right? I mean, just wish for a million <laughs> wish wishes. Wish for three you know? more wishes. <laughs> yes. Helen would, back to friends, I'm back to friends. Helen would de-invent the razor from all <laughs> Captain America movies. That's right. I would get rid of that scene right yeah. immediately. Just sub in a beard in every single scene of uh, Endgame. Um, no, okay. I would, fi- fixing what is currently maybe not 100% working, I would... Um, and what is that, Helen? Well, what, what I mean, there that? was a variety piece this week um, going in depth on on what's been sort of happening at Marvel recently and and sort of suggesting that there's a bit of a, maybe a crisis of confidence as much as anything else at the studio that, um, you know, no, um, that, that things are having to be, you know, rewritten, rethought at quite a late stage, that they're realising that the do it now and fix it in post uh, situation isn't maybe working. It seems they're in difficulties with Blade in particular, for example, they're worried about Laser. the Marvels. There's all these kind of issues. And um and yeah, there are there are some, you know, there are some big challenges there. So I think what would maybe help, uh, first of all, is to cut output. I don't think we need yeah. five or six TV shows and movies a year. I I think there is too much of a good thing mm-hmm. and we might be hitting it. Um I would like to see I mean, the, the problem with that, I realise, is that they do want to have that this massive cast, this massive canvas, and do everything at once. But maybe we don't need everything at once, and maybe there's there's some room for a bit more innovation there. So I would quite like us 
to try some new things, like maybe you know, maybe a lower budgeted, maybe a slightly different tone for something like Squirrel Girl. Like, let's be a bit more experimental. Let's try some mm-hmm. more things. Right. Um, but what one thing would you do next? Squirrel Girl. What one thing? Squirrel Girl. <laughs> squirrel Girl. You'd yeah. wait for a magic wand. If you had a magic wand, yep. you would make a Squirrel Girl movie. I would. <laughs> Take the magic wand off Helen immediately. Yeah. It's confiscated. Look, I, I'm just, just you know, give it to a, a filmmaker who cares about it, who's passionate about it, who's a bit weird. I think it'd be a, a lot of fun, and I think we need the weirdness back, and I think we need the sense of possibility back. That's all I'm kind of trying to get at here. See, I wonder whether the problem is. I mean, it's definitely exactly what you say. Like, there's too much stuff, and the quality's been far too variable. But I do think we're in a stage where a lot of the things, and we talk about this a little bit on the the spoiler special podcast for the new Loki episode. Uh, but just gone up. Just gone up. In fact, is that a lot of the stuff that they're either introducing or teeing up, either we don't care about or is never going to happen. So mm. the stuff that we've had in post credits things never going to happen. I like if I had a magic wand, I would stop everything. Yeah. Fast forward time and do a soft reboot with the X-Men. Just literally just cast aside everything they're doing at the moment and just begin again with an X-Men centric storyline. You know, almost borrowing uh, you know, a page from from the playbook that they used to build up the Avengers, right? So not quite the same way because X-Men comes as a preformed team, but maybe you do do individual characters. I don't know, I'll leave that stuff to Feige, but I'm just saying Start again with the X-Men, because the X-Men for me were always better than the Avengers. They, they were Marvel for me. I've always yeah. been very mutant-centric. And I feel like if you can get rid of... <laughs> indeed, in so many enough ways. about your personal life. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'd, honestly, I'd cast everything aside and I would focus on mutants. and I Because it's such a rich, almost sub-universe within mm-hmm. Marvel. The mutant mm-hmm. stuff is so complex. I almost think everything other than mutants, if you're looking at that, complicates stuff too much. And I would just focus on that. That would be my cool. magic. That would be my one wish. <laughs> and right. and then Helen and would counter that with no more mutants, <gasps> and that would be her wish. Whoa, dude! <laughs> no more never. mutants, just loads of fucking squirrels. <laughs> yeah, <that's it. laughs> Look, she took down Thanos and Galactus. All right, just oh, saying. You, you tripped him up with some squirrels. I don't know if that. I mean, he slipped I'm on just that saying. one It works. Mm. What would you rather face? One Thanos-sized squirrel, <laughs> <laughs> or a thousand squirrel-sized Thanoses? <laughs> I, d- I definitely think one Thanos-sized squirrel. Yeah, you think he could take it? You- no, I mean no, but <laughs> but I think a thousand squirrel squirrel-sized Thanoses would be really bad news for the galaxy. Thanos uh, isn't that big. I mean, he's like nine feet tall. I know, no, but, but like squirrels this- have like the claws and the teeth. The big you know, teeth. they're kind of squirrels are kind of scary, man. Yeah, oh, yeah. Thank you. I the, think the, a Thanos-sized uh, squirrel would be scary. That the one thousand squirrel-sized Thanoses. Do they all have? Infinity Stones. How does that work? Mm. Well, even but if they didn't, they'd their be little scheming. Are too small. They'd be scheming to get Infinity mm. Stones, though. They'd still be. They don't have the power. Would they store Infinity Stones for the winter? Is yeah. They, <laughs> they buried them and then forgot where they buried them. They keep them so. in their cheeks. Yeah. I mean, look. I think no, is this that, is, that is the idea. That <laughs> look, this is the idea that's going to save Marvel. Okay, that's my it? one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Hang on a second. Have we hit upon something? We may have done. Is this all the problem? I don't care about Marvel. Is this what squirrels are looking for? Sources oh, say variety reports. I'm not buying any of this nuts bullshit. They're looking for infinity stones, those little fuckers, and I mm. think we should wipe them out. Squirrels, eh? Yeah, maybe we do need Squirrel Girl to get them in line. Um, I'm telling you. Yeah. 
I'm I'm rapidly coming on board with your idea here, Helen. That this is <laughs> it may not revive Marvel's fortunes critically or indeed commercially. Not exactly. Not that they're paupers. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I mean should, you know we should make this clear. They're they're, they're not they're, they're not, not scrounging the around. Line. No. But they have had a bit of a, a bumpier ride over the last two years. Uh, roughly, as I saw someone else point out on Twitter yesterday, roughly at the exact moment that Martin Scorsese <laughs> started targeting him in interviews was the exact moment that some of their movies and TV shows started to become, how should we say, less than great. Um, which is, you know, I wonder if he's he's playing the long con here. Is he doing something about that? Um, wow. That's that's what my wish would be. I would I would get them to hire Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I wonder if you gave him like the budget for you know Silence Two or whatever his dream project is that he wants to make right now. Um, <laughs> Silence Two is it was... Silence Two really? <laughs> hey, he, Silence was it for a long time. I don't know what's on his to do list right now, but it was it was a big dream project. So you know maybe if you if you promise him that if you promise him. A Marvel style budget or a Marvel style marketing budget for Silence Two, which is what I'm calling Martin Scorsese's dream project. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Then, then you could persuade him to make a Marvel movie. That would so be. Here's my thing. Kind of hilarious, Helen, right? Yeah. Why can't Silence Two be about Black Bolt? You know, Chris, that is a great question. That is such a great question. And I feel like so many of the problems in our world could be solved by bringing people together the way that you just have. You know, have yeah. Martin Scorsese, you'd obviously have to call him Blackagar Boltagon, like his formal name, just to, to get Scorsese's attention. You know, he wouldn't be into a character called Black Bolt, but mm. Blackagar Boltagon, no. that is the kind of name that commands respect. And I think he'd be there. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be an inhuman. <laughs> There's your opening line. You could have it, and you could have Black Blackagar Boltagon um, talking. You could have him doing a voiceover because that would be fine. That wouldn't break the rules. That's an internal thing. That's an internal thing. But yeah. imagine how much better Silence would have been, right? <laughs> if Andrew Garfield or Adam Driver had been able to level a mountain with their voice. I'll be honest. I genuinely love Silence, so I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this, <laughs> the, the turn this has taken. But okay, you know, okay, it would be a, it would be an incredible thing. Yeah. Would Taxi Driver have been better if Travis Bickle had been able to shoot optic laser blasts out of his eyes? You know what? I think you, I think it might have been. I mean, <laughs> I think it, I think it really would have been pretty perfect. Wow. Well, how about the Age of Innocence, but with laser bolts out of the eyes? They're not lasers, please. <laughs> The, the age, age of, of Ultron innocence. The age yeah. of oh, innocence of Ultron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ultron's I am buying comeback. That. Listen, I am, I am all for holding Martin Scorsese at one point and making him direct the Squirrel Girl movie. I think that would be tremendous. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to put him or indeed Marvel through that. <laughs> but I, I but it do, would but... be kind of fun. <laughs> There's part of me would really like to do that. I, I want to bring Sophie in. I want to have Sophie's one Marvel wish uh, in a second as well. But can I just say, I, I, I just find this whole Scorsese versus Marvel thing so horribly, horribly tedious. Yeah. The people who um, started it must be absolute twats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oops. Uh, if I had a time machine, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and, and smack that question out of Nick's hand. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's one of those things that Scorsese would have said it at some point to somebody. I think it was on his mind, basically. But I just, I think it's tedious. Like, you know, everyone film Twitter, especially, is trying to draw sides. 
I don't think you have to take sides in this. I really don't. I think Martin Scorsese, <laughs> this is not a controversial opinion, is one of the greatest filmmakers <laughs> of all time, um, if not the greatest. I think that the MCU, especially in that run between 2013 and 2019, uh, delivered the single greatest sustained run of blockbuster filmmaking in history uh, and is doing things with long-form storytelling that uh, many, many other people have never been able to do. And why can't you appreciate both of those? <laughs> Welcome to my TED talk. Uh, <laughs> Sylvie, um, what about you? What, what one thing would you do with your magic wand? I think um, with my magic wand, I would make myself care about it again. Because I think oh. that's... <laughs> and I'm not saying that in like a savage way. I'm saying savage it in like way. quite a sad way in that I was so excited about these films and this world. And I was so invested, especially around the time when the Infinity Saga was closing mm you know, um, Black Panther and Captain Marvel and and then Infinity War and Endgame and that, just that period. It was just so exciting to me. Mm. It really gripped me. And all I want, I keep going back to every show, every film they do, even though I haven't liked a ton of them for a while, just because I want to feel that way again. And I'm like, well, maybe this time, this yeah. is the one that's going to make me feel that way. But I just don't think that the world is set up for me to feel that way anymore not at least for a while until they can reach that kind of crescendo, which I understand is not something that's going to come out with every project. Yeah. It's something to be built towards. I, but wo I wonder if it's I wonder if it's a problem that we're waiting for this crescendo again. I wonder if, yeah, that's, if that's part the issue, of actually, right? Because we, we kind of feel like everything has to build to every two or three years, uh, you know, an Avengers, a, a team up, yeah. a something. And, 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 and they seem to feel that way too, that there, there's a sense there that they're, they keep building and building and building. And and actually, we should be able to just enjoy. And I think this is one of the things that worked about some of the projects. Mm. We were able to just enjoy a one division for most of the runtime until mm. maybe it became a bit more universy at the end. We were able to just enjoy a Loki for most of the runtime until it became a bit more setty uppy at the end. Maybe we just need to have things be those things a little bit more. But but to the point, and this is weird to say this, you know, coming from the position of the Pilot TV podcast, stop the fucking TV shows. Just <gasps> stop them. Not because yeah. they're bad, but because the sense of it being an event has gone. Yeah, really like, gone. It used to be, oh my God, it's a Marvel movie. And now it's, oh my, oh, it's... It's a Marvel movie because there's so much of this shit. Same with Star Wars. It's like, shut that shit down. Oh, I mean, don't because Andor's like the greatest thing ever. But <laughs> apart from Andor, apart from Andor, well, I, shut that shit down I don't and give us Star Wars be, movies again. I don't know if it'd be so widespread with my magic wand, Jimbo, uh, because <laughs> I still think there's there's genuine greatness. I think Guardians 3 was was astonishing. I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm the only fan of Quantumania on the planet, but <laughs> you, you really know, I think are. some of the, some of the TV shows are have been really really great uh, and then there's Secret Invasion um, but I, I think what we have had over the last couple of years is more middling content and more misses than we have ever had from mm. the MCU and so it creates this narrative that the ship is listing that it is taking on water uh, I don't necessarily think that's the case I think it's still capable of greatness I think it can get us back to that place I think mm. once the X-Men and the Fantastic Four start coming into it and you start bringing in some of the big guns again you know Tom Holland's Spider-Man and you start you get a sense of this working towards something that I think we're going to get excited again time now for this week's first guest we've got three guests this week I'm going to save Patrick Stewart to the end because he's Patrick Stewart makes sense right? yeah that's fair yeah alright <laughs> so we've got Emma Seligman director of Bottoms or we've got Kitty Green director of the Royal Hotel who do you want? Emma Seligman Bottoms yeah it's me me first 
Bottoms Up, uh, Sophie Butcher it is who interviewed Emma Seligman, who is the director of Shiver Baby and also now Bottoms, which is getting a release this week. It's the, the well, how would you say, the lewd teen fight club comedy? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Sounded yeah. very Daily Mailer, didn't it? The lewd teen fight club comedy. <laughs> anarchic, um, I would describe it rather anarchic, than lewd. Anarchic fight club comedy that came out in the States <laughs> a couple of months ago. And we thought it was going to suffer the same fate as the last voyage of the Demeter and not get a release over here but it's been released hooray or will be released this Friday which is great which is today by the time you're listening to this Uh, and Sophie spoke to Emma Seligman and good stuff Sophie yeah I hope so hope so do you remember what you said yes (laughs) was it good I think so she was very nice and I got to talk to her in person which was extra special in person so chances are one of you has given the other one a communicable disease (laughs) which is great yay (laughs) Um, always fun. Is it? Always fun. <laughs> we actually uh, had a we fight. Um, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about it, so we didn't oh, mention it in okay. the interview. But I got it. I got it. Yeah. Okay, no worries. Uh, here is Sophie talking to Emma Seligman. Do please enjoy. Emma Seligman, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Such a delight to have you here in person as well. How? When did you get into London? Have you been? Have you been here long? Uh, I got here yesterday. Oh. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. A little jet lag. Very, jet-like. very happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you like to do, especially when you're this side of the pond or when you're in London? I haven't been here um, in ten years, um, so I I don't know. I, I I generally just like to walk around. That's my favorite way of taking in a. A place I'm not familiar with. Um, yeah. But I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I'm very excited that we're finally getting bottoms over here. It's been a little while since the US release, but it's finally coming out this week. Um, it's your second feature after your debut, Shiva Baby, which I absolutely loved and was a great success. How did you kind of decide that this was what you were going to do next? How did you think this is the next feature for me? I think I just wanted to work with Rachel Sennett so much again. And um, you know, I had a vague idea of a high school sex comedy um, with queer girls and fighting, but I think mostly I just wanted to work with her. And I think this movie really came from her sense of humor and her style and um, her love of absurdity and camp. Um, so that's how we sort of settled on the sort of the vibe and idea of, of what this became. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, you, you co-wrote it with, with Rachel and she also stars in this again. She, she starred in Shiva Baby as well. How has it been to kind of develop that working relation with her and sort of take it to the next level? Has it been, you know, really fulfilling for you guys to kind of take it to that, that next step together? Definitely. It's, it's rare to sort of have an experience with another person that, um, I don't know, isn't in the industry in terms of, I don't know, prior background or, or family or anything. And so um, over the last six years, I felt like I've had a partner sort of entering this world together in, and, uh, you know, navigating the, the waters of, <laughs> of, of the the good things and the tricky things and, and everything as we've tried to sort of get our first two movies off the ground, one independently, obviously, um, and then this one sort of in more of, of the industry or studio sort of landscape. Um, but it's been lovely. Like, I don't know, it's been so rewarding. Yeah, having this experience of creating our, this baby together and then being able to release it into the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so this centers on two girls in high school, PJ and Josie, um, and they start up a fight club to um, what they're calling a self-defense club to kind of get closer to their crushes and all this sort of stuff. Um, where did that? When did that Fight Club idea come into it? Was that something that Rachel had already had in her head, or that you had? What process? What stage in the process did that come into the film? 
Um, it came pretty early. I think I wanted the there to be some sort of fighting or heroic element of the movie um, because I I love I don't know movies where teenage boys typically get to save the day and impress the girl or whatever like Scott Pilgrim and, and mm. Attack the Block and uh, I don't know even Kick Ass like our, our big references in that way um, and I think we just thought about sort of what would still make it funny though and and what was in a world we could understand so I think to make them superheroes was too much um, mm. but uh, you know how could they sort of use the fact that they're I don't know. Uh, try, uh, how can they sort of like mimic this masculinity they think will impress these girls? And um, I don't know if the Fight Club idea came pretty quick as, as sort of a way of, I don't know, uh, showing how shitty PJ and Josie could be sort of in that they are manipulating this idea of self-defense. Like mm. they, they convince these girls to join this Fight Club because they tell them they can teach them how to defend themselves. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of like manipulating this sense of female solidarity. It feels like quite a step up in scale, I think, from Shiva Baby, like in terms of there's lots of different settings within the school. It's quite a big ensemble of kids you've got here um, and these big action set pieces. I mean, how did it feel to kind of be expanding in that way? Was it sort of nerve wracking to be taking on these kind of bigger set pieces from a viewer anyway? Maybe as a director, you feel that it was kind of there all along. You were ready for it. But how did it feel? I think in both ways, I felt like I was ready for it because we'd been writing it for so long. Yeah. And I knew the movie so well in my head. But then in other ways, yeah, it was totally terrifying. Um, and I think I knew going into it, I I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I prepared as much as I could. I think that's the only way you can ensure you're going to do a half-decent job is just prepping your... Yeah, I don't know, stunts and, and shot lists and whatever it is you can do uh, to, to get your head wrapped around every single scene. But yeah, it was it was totally nerve-wracking for sure. Mm -hmm. What kind of things did you do to help prepare? You mentioned sort of um, getting the shot lists all down, but was the kind of action element like a whole new thing for you to kind of get your head around? Was it sort of a whole new element of research that you had to do as a director going into it? Definitely. Yeah. I think I'm used to sort of just watching references for, for visual inspiration or, or, or for writing. Um, but I, it, there was a long period of, yeah, watching a lot of fight sequences from different movies and figuring out the kind of style that I wanted um, and working with my wonderful cinematographer, Maria Rushi, to sort of figure out that style, look at those fight sequences, like figure out the the kind of camera work we wanted and um, settling on the fact that we wanted our actors to do the stunts and, and not no devils mm. um, and looking at the amount of humor we could have and the amount of blood and um, whatnot. So yeah, a whole a sort of section of research was devoted to that, but it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And you mentioned the actors doing the stunts. You spoke to Empire a little while ago for the, for the magazine, the issue that's just come out, and you talked about sending the actors to a boot camp. Um, and I guess was that just about them learning how to do this stunt fighting in a way that was, you know, cinematic and but safe? But was it also about them kind of bonding as characters as well in that setting that they were kind of going to be in the film? Definitely. I mean, the boot camp was really just them going to a space with our stunt coordinator, Devin uh, McNair, who's lovely, and uh, her two um, assistant stunt coordinators. And um, I, I mean, really, it was just to literally all I wanted as a director out of that on a technical level was for them to learn the sequences that they, they were going to actually have to do mm -hmm. and the choreography they were going to have to do. But um, I think that the 
what came out of that was, yeah, a lot of bonding. And um, yeah, learning. I think the trickiest thing about stunts that I learned was it's it's actually so much harder to look like you've been punched in the face yeah. than <laughs> to, to actually <laughs> sell the punch. Like it's it's way more scary or not scary, but it's it's to be in the position where you have to pretend first you have to like know that your partner is not going to like hit you in the face, but then also to realistically look like you're getting yeah. hit um, or kicked or whatever it is is hard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they bonded. They 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 learned how to look like they were getting attacked, and um, <laughs> and and yeah, they they did a great job. Yeah, that was um something kind of unexpected, I guess, when I was watching the film. That um the sort of fighting montages and seeing the girls like getting stuck into this, and it is bloody and it is kind of brutal. It felt kind of cathartic. I don't know, just to see girls kind of engaging in that sort of violence, but in a kind of safe space almost that they were in this club um was that something that kind of you intended from the start when the fight club idea came in or was it as you sort of got into it you thought there's actually something quite powerful here in seeing these girls do this I think it was something that came as we got into it I think Mm -hmm. initially we just thought it would be stupid and fun (laughs) to have this much violence and this much um fighting but then as we got into it yeah I think we started to sort of feel like it was allowing our characters and, you know, me and Rachel to unleash a sort of angst, yeah. a female angst, you know, <laughs> that, we, that we have um, and and getting to do it sort of through them and through creating these sequences mm. um, was really fun and, and empowering, especially the more people were like shocked that, that we had this much blood and this much violence in the movie. It just mm. made me more excited to, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I love about the film so much is it's so highly satirical and it's so it like barely takes itself seriously. It's kind of like a, an odd tone, but once you get into like the sort of vibe that it's on, it's so rewarding for me, I found. Um, how do you kind of manage to strike that tone in the end result? How do you kind of manage to do that in the writing, in the direction? Is that some like, how are you conscious of that when you're putting the film together and how it's going to feel at the end when you're making it? Um, thank you for saying that. Uh, I think tone is the hardest thing always from writing up until the color grading, like Mm. every step of the way you're monitoring tone. And obviously it's my job to like rein it in here and there or, or to make sure that, you know, whatever it is at the heart of our tone is, is punching through, um, I think it's like a step-by-step process where you're like, does this make sense? Like this kind of cinematography or Mm. um, this kind of color palette or this kind of performance, does this make sense in my world? And you kind of just have to go off your instincts um, Mm. and and getting notes from people and making sure that other people are feeling like it kind of makes sense. Um, But I don't know. I love satire and that's part of the reason I'm really excited to show it to UK audiences. <laughs> um, uh, I, the goal from the beginning was to not take ourselves seriously and mm. to to just totally make it as absurd as possible. Um, so I think that there was a certain element of, I don't know, not having to be too precious about, is this totally making sense? Like, mm. does this, does this, I don't know, is this believable or realistic? Um, and I, and just sort of give like let yourself go and and be like none of it needs to make sense (laughs) like we can just totally have fun yeah because the world that you've created you get to kind of throw that stuff out the window and you you're not like bogged down by those things I guess you can be a bit more free in what you're doing and what you're writing yeah I I think so I mean our script supervisor was often confused by sort of like (laughs) I, she would be like, this doesn't track, like, between this scene and this scene, she's not wearing this anymore. 
And I was like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just let it go. <laughs> Just let it go. And she was like, okay, you're making my job a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so, so, but then at a certain point, you're like, okay, wait, this needs to track somewhat. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it needs to feel somewhat threaded together, which yeah. it perfectly does. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and what I like about that tone so much with Shiva Baby, it, it was such like a build intention. The whole film was just like, you know, really on a just the tension just built and built throughout, throughout. And in this one, it felt like you were really having fun in kind of undercutting any tension that you were building or like just the editing style and, you know, coming in with a joke or a really funny cut to something. Is that something that you were interested in playing with, like having kind of done one thing with Shiba Baby, like kind of doing another thing with this one? Definitely. I hope to always just sort of do something different and have fun in another kind of genre uh, or or style of humor um, that I haven't done before. And I think operating through Rachel and Io's comedic styles yeah. allowed me to have, again, have fun and not worry about, is this building enough tension within the scene? Like, are there enough obstacles to the character's goals right now? Like, yeah. I think working within a broader comedy, like, genre just allows you to have so much more fun. And, and then I get to focus more on I don't know, the visual details and, and things like that when I know that, especially with Rachel and I, that they're really, um, I'm good, you know, with the the amount of humor. Like, I know that they've, they they have it under control. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Was, was there a lot of improvisation on set? It, it felt like that. It felt like it had that kind of loose improv nature, as well as sticking to, you know, the the, bit, uh, the beats it needed to hit. Was Did you encourage improvisation among, amongst the cast while you were filming? Um, I didn't necessarily encourage it, but it did happen. But it happened anyway. <laughs> it happened anyway. Um, and I kind of knew that that was going to happen. I feel like if anything, I went in trying to figure out how to sort of control it and yeah. um, shape the improv and 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 monitor it so that it's not just all over the place, but that it, so it feels intentional. Mm. Um, uh, but I and Rachel have worked together so many times before, and they have such a rapport that 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 that's their way of getting into a scene is just by improvising. And so it would happen on the first take and I would just like have to bite my nails and be <laughs> like, I, I really hope this is making sense. But I would be running on so much panic um, <laughs> that the scene wouldn't make sense that I, uh, you know, wouldn't be able to tell or sort of calibrate that in the moment. Um, mm. But Rachel and I were both, they're such great writers on top of being such wonderful actors and performers. So I, again, almost always I trusted that, that, um, they were they 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 had it under control and they did. Yeah, you can really that sort of chemistry between them. You say they've worked together a lot, and that chemistry between them as friends is such a kind of grounding factor in this kind of weird and wacky film. Um, I or that most of our listeners will know from The Bear, of course, um, but is a great comedian and is really let loose her full comedic ability in this one. Um, you say, obviously, she's worked with Rachel a lot and you were familiar with her through that, but what, what made her right for Josie, aside from that? Totally. I, I actually, I met Aya before I met Rachel. Um, I mean, very short, like only a month or two before when we were in school together. And I just thought she was so awkward and <laughs> adorable. She actually, like we were at this like, kind of, I don't know, pretentious film school party. <laughs> and she cracked like a Downton Abbey joke and I was the only one who got it in the room <laughs> and it kind of bombed. But mm. I was like, this girl's so um, nerdy and adorable. And then I started watching her comedy and she has such a slapstick sense of humor. Mm. She's so good at being physical in a way that I feel like I don't see often with younger 
sort of alt comedians. Yeah. Like she's she's got quite an absurd sort of larger than lifestyle. And I I think, I don't know. Yeah, I thought she'd be perfect for Josie because she's got this sweetness and vulnerability to her and a self-deprecation um, but is ridiculous and absurd. And um, yeah, like uh, larger than life. And, and it worked out. <laughs> it did, it did. Um, I think I'm nearly at my time. Um, but I was just wondering, this was such a, an interesting second film for you and kind of a change in genre and all that sort of stuff. What What's next? Have you got a different kind of genre that you've got your eye on that you might be um, wanting to tackle next? Definitely. I think that sort of the blood and action of this movie got me excited about doing both horror like nice. true horror and um, just a straight up action movie mm-hmm. without, not without comedy, but that's more action driven. Yeah. Yeah. So look out for yeah. Emma Seligman horror in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I love this film and it was great to speak to you today. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you for Emma. having me. Thank you. All right, so that was Emma Seligman. We'll be talking about Bottoms later on in the show. Let us talk now about the movie news and still the actors are on strike. Yep, they are. So nothing doing there, but there is some movie news, right? There's some stuff has been happening. Mm. Yeah, there, there do seem to have been some announcements of people starring in projects, which is which is exciting. But yeah, also some films coming out. As usual, let's just say this fairly quickly. We've got a raft of trailers have come out this week. Uh, most recently, The Fall Guy. That's mm-hmm. the Ryan Gosling, Emily Blunt film where a stuntman has to go up against real bad guys. Yes. Um, and the stuntman is played by Ken, and uh, therefore I'm excited for it. It looks looks really good. He's just a stuntman. He's just a stuntman, but that's... This is David Leitch's movie. It is yes. David Leitch's movie, yes, correct. Um, and it has a really good supporting cast around um, Gosling and Blunt as well. That's going to be just a, a giggle. I think that's all in March. Uh, it also had a trailer this week for The Boy and the Heron, the new mm. Studio Ghibli, which is, as you would expect, beautiful and baffling. Lovely trailer. Which is how Studio Ghibli films should be. And we had a trailer for um, David Holmes' The Boy Who Lived, which is the documentary about uh, Daniel Radcliffe's stunt double on the Potter movies, who was uh, very seriously injured on those movies. And uh, it's the story of how he coped with that, his life before that and after that um, life-altering injury. So um, that also looks really um, actually moving and inspirational. And uh, I'm interested in seeing that too. So I'm, I'm guessing none of you have seen the trailer for Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, which dropped just before we started recording? No, sadly no, not. not. The story yet. is up. We have yet to watch the trailer. Is the story up? It is. It's up well, on the Empire good. website. Well, You'd think we'd have go. read it. Uh, well, we have read it. We just haven't seen it. Hey, listen, I got someone to write it up and, I'm, and I ran to this podcast yeah. and I didn't watch it. Sophie's all about the delegation. <laughs> well, it's got a bunch of apes uh, together, strong. And this is Wes Ball's movie. So this is apparently taking place uh, hundreds of years after the last Planet of the Apes movie. So no Andy Circus this time. And this is, as far as I can tell from the trailer, looks fantastic. Looks really, really great. Um, but it looks like a sort of ape civil war of some kind. Uh, there is a human in it, but it does seem like this is the first project that doesn't have human leads. The first Apes movie that doesn't have human leads. You know, even back to the the most recent ones, the Matt Reeves movies, you know, had Woody Harrelson or yeah. Chasing mm. Clark and Kerry Russell or Gary Oldman. But it looks good. I'm excited about it. Really I, lo- I love the Apes films. So, yeah, yes, very, very excited about this. And if it's all Apes, so much the better. People suck. <laughs> It's very nice that David Robert Mitchell is coming back for They Follow, oh, this is the sequel to It Follows, 
Uh, I'm pretty psyched about this. I love It Follows. I think it's I absolutely it. fantastic. I love It Follows. It haunts me. Oh, it's, it's terrifying. Me to this day. Don't have sex, Does kids. It... You'll die. <laughs> Does it walk about 10 paces behind you? <laughs> all the time? Yeah, so, yeah. It's always in my rearview mirror. I see people across the street. I think they're walking towards me. Such Is that a why you wanted film. to interview Emma Seligman so you could give it to her? <laughs> Steady. <laughs> Don't hear it. I'm professional like, in an interview. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Oh, God. That's, that's how it's passed on. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I can confirm that's not what happened. Um, all right, good. But I love It Follows. It's one of my favourite horror films of mm. all time, I'd say. It feels so original and creepy and it really stays with you. Mike Monroe is excellent. Yep. I wish she was yes. in more stuff. Mm. She's yes. so good in that movie. So I'm yes. very excited about this. It follows is fantastic. So it's about if you haven't seen it, David Robert Mitchell, not not David Mitchell, not the guy from Peep Show and <laughs> um, Would I Lie to You and um, what's the other, what's the one about Shakespeare? Upstart Crow. That's yeah. it. I love that sitcom and I couldn't remember what it's called. He anyway, David Robert Mitchell. It was he, he directed it and it's brilliant and it's about um, sex that kills you basically. So yeah. you know the people who have sex who are then followed by this sex demon uh, who then follows you and they if they catch up to you, they kill you. Uh, and the only way to get rid of this curse, this demon, is to have sex with someone else then you pass it on to them. I think there's a subtle metaphor in there but I can't <laughs> yeah. quite grasp but it. As, as Sophie was saying, it's that it walks towards you incredibly slowly, slowly. but inexorably. It never stops. It yeah, will yeah. always catch you eventually and you're the only one who can see, see it. it. Yeah. And it's the bits where they're looking around and then one person in the crowd stands out and they're like, oh, oh. Because it changes the way it looks, right? Yeah, like it, it shapeshifts as well. It looks different. It might oh, look like someone you know. It's scaring the shit out of me just thinking about it. The bit where the big tall guy in the hallway, in the door, behind the girl. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Traumatizing stuff. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think but, when he went in to pitch this, right? He he wrote It Follows. Oh uh, yeah. Right. And then he crossed it out and he wrote They Follow, but then he wrote lines across the E. <laughs> yeah. For Euros. For Euros. Yeah. <laughs> Very good, yes. Helen. I think that's exactly what happened. That must be what happened, right? <laughs> and why for for yen? And why for yen? yen? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure <laughs> Money in all currencies. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. It's, it's, it's exciting. I hope it's because he has a great story to tell and not because he's... Mm. He wants loads of cash. struggling to get stuff off the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, the other movie news that I'm personally very excited about is that there has now been a second sequel to Fall greenlit. So it's going to be like a new franchise. The movie, have you seen, has anyone seen Fall? You're looking at me in very the, blank the, face. No, I know the one you mean. This the is one, the one yeah, where they get stuck the tall tower yeah. with, the, with the vulture. Yeah. Absolutely deranged film that Ben and I uh, watched before we covered the Oscars this year <laughs> <laughs> and couldn't recover from, from the whole, for the whole evening. Um, very fun, silly um sort of thriller, survival thriller. And we knew that there was a sequel coming, um, but apparently a second sequel has been greenlit now. And it's Scott Mann, the director, um, and he's coming back for the second two as well. So they're going to have a whole new fall franchise. Are they cl cl climbing up a bigger tower? Are oh, they? Boy. Are they going down instead of up? What are they going to do? Will Who the knows? crow be back? The vulture? The vulture, that's crow. the question on everyone's lips. Will lives. the vulture be back? Michael, Michael Keaton. Keaton. Is it the Vulture's family's <laughs> yeah. revenge? We don't know, but I'm very excited. Yeah, it's not the only survival thriller this week. There was also uh, Sydney Sweeney and Vanessa Kirby have joined mm. uh, Eden, which is, I think, about a remote island. Is that right? And then Idris Elba is directing an astronaut survival yes. thriller. So 
It, there's yes. just a lot of survival happening. And, and here, continuing the sort of vertical theme, is called Above the Below. Which is logical. Literally. Yeah, because the above is always above the below. <laughs> so he's directing that one, He's directing, right? yes. He's directing Above the Below. That's above a thinker. the Below. And Ron Howard is directing Eden, which he's apparently been working on for like 15 years. Um, has a really good cast lined up. Um, Jude Law, Anna de Armas and Daniel Brühl are already aboard and Vanessa Kirby and Sydney Sweeney have joined this week. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that exciting immediately. I'm excited about those people on board. Mm-hmm. Um, Idris, I don't believe, has his entire cast in place yet, um, but he has Mark Owen, I think, um, uh, on there as well it's a co-direct, as a co-director. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll hear more about that, I guess, going forward. That's exciting. Hmm. That's very exciting. I don't know why I said it like that, but it's very <laughs> exciting indeed. Uh, I think there's, is there anything else happening? Anything else going on? Anything else at all? That's that the might big be stuff. That's the big stuff. There was a first, a first image um, just uh, very earlier in the week, the first image of Rachel Zegler as Snow White came out. That's true. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, looking very cartoony, very exaggerated uh, dwarves. Um, she, of course, looks angelic and Snow Whitey. Um, so uh, the, the the internet was as uh, nasty as they have been so about this project mean. all along. Yeah, but uh, you know, I don't think there's anything particularly objectionable in this picture, um, unless you don't like very cartoonish-looking, terrifying, you know, <laughs> um, uncanny valley dwarves. But apart from that, what I mean, are, I mean the dwarves were terrifying. <laughs> they are terrifying. It's you know. CGI dwarves. I don't know what we expect them to look like. Kind I of thought like they'd be better, better than that. Is what I, mean, I was hoping. That, that's fair. That's I fair. thought they honestly. I thought they'd be a little grumpier, a little dopier, a little oh. sneezier. Can you get um, all seven though? Go on, go on then. You've signed that. <laughs> okay. Right. Stop naming dwarves. <laughs> um, Back to friends. Yeah. Winner, McQueen. <laughs> well, so what is it? It's happy, grumpy, dopey, sleepy, sneezy, horse bug holtz, and Brad Dexter. Wait, I know the one that you probably forget. Bashful. Oh, that's my one. Okay, Twat face. On. <laughs> oh, I don't know who the last one is. Doc. Doc! Doc! Oh, how was I going to get that? It's not even an adjective. The rogue one. Yeah. <laughs> no, rogue no, one's rogue a, one's a different, different franchise. Film. Right, okay, okay. <laughs> They're ugnaughts in that. Not, Did Doc not go to medical school? I want to see his qualifications. He's not a real doctor. Hey, he, may not, he may not be a medical doctor. He might be a PhD. That's true. A doctor of... Uh, Mining. 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 Yeah. yeah. I, geology. Oh! <laughs> geology. Yes. A doctor of geology. There we go. There we go. We've solved, solved it. solved it. Hi ho! I'm afraid it's terminal. <laughs> <laughs> What's this bedside manner like? Anyway, uh, it's been pushed back a year. So maybe they can get the, uh, the, the, the look of the dwarf. Because they, they were bashful. Maybe. That's why they pushed it back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or sleepy. Okay. Right. You could have been sleepy, <laughs> bit dopey, <laughs> bit grumpy. <laughs> just, uh, just say them again. What yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of them will work? <laughs> exciting times. Exciting times Brilliant. ahead, folks. Exciting news. Apparently, now you see me three is going to be a reality. Talking no, about magic wands. Please tell me it's called, finally called now you don't. No, oh, I was. I thought you were going to say now you three me. No, <laughs> no, that that's a very fall. different type of film, and you have to be eighteen to watch it. Now you see three. Yeah, yeah. Ruben Fleischer is going to direct it. Yes, uh, but that was something he announced a while ago. I don't know why this is a story, um, but uh, it was announced this week. So Jesse Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, Woody Harrelson, <laughs> mm-hmm. and Morgan Freeman are all going to be back. Back, back, back. I know you're excited about this, Chris. I know this is a favorite of yours. 
Um, are you are you coping? Are you are you okay? I want to know about Mark Ruffalo. Of course you do. Of course we all do. His story. His the story of those two movies. It's so true. Uh, not the Four Horsemen. Mm. It's all about insert name of Mark Ruffalo characters here. <laughs> Did you know that now you see me, now you don't is the motto of the Unseen University in Ankhmore Pork. I did in the Terry Pratchett books. I did indeed, but in Latin. Ah, oh. ish. <laughs> Sorry, what the fuck? <laughs> That's like such a that was such a Henry Jones Senior thing you just did. <laughs> <in Latin. laughs> I try. Count to ten in Greek. But in Latin, Jehovah begins with an I. Ah, dear. Anyway, um, I think we obviously, there's a lot of movie news, which I'm, you know what? I'm glad that there's some casting news and whatnot because I think that means that they are preparing for the end of the actor's strike. Yeah. And they're beginning to. Hopefully. They are back at the table, I believe, this week. And Mm. that's, that's a good sign. Yes. But I think they're still quite far apart in that the actors are still saying to the, the studios, Please don't replace us with AI and please pay us what we're worth. And the studio's like, nah. <laughs> so <laughs> at the moment, until the studios yield a little bit more in that, uh, then we may not, we're still, we're still at something of an impasse. But hopefully, 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 there'll be um, an agreement soon, which is nice. But there is movie news. And of course, we discussed quite a lot of movie news in the opening segment mm-hmm. as well. So I think that's, that's it, right? Hurrah. Mm-hmm. Should we move on? Yes, let's. Yeah. To our second guest, who is, without a doubt, there's no question about it, it's Kitty Green, director of The Royal Hotel, and also director of The Assistant, which was that excellent Julia Garner drama that came out back in 2020. I spoke to Kitty Green, oh God, at the height of the pandemic now, I, I, I think, about that movie. And three years later, we caught up again on Zoom, because she's in Australia, uh, to talk about The Royal Hotel, in which Julia Garner once again uh, stars as one half of a pair of friends, along with Jessica Hennick, who are travelling through Australia, but they run out of cash. So in their desire to make more cash in order to pay their way, they take on a temporary work assignment at a, at a remote hotel called, you'll never guess, the Royal Hotel. And there they fall foul of some very, very toxic males. Uh, so there's a lot to get into with this movie. It's a, it's a great movie uh, filled with great performances. And uh, I had a real blast talking to Kitty Green about it. Do please enjoy. And if I sound even more tired than usual, it's because it was very early in the morning. <laughs> we are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the writer and director of the Royal Hotel, Kitty Green. Welcome back to the Empire Podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. 7pm where you are at the moment in Australia. Almost, yeah. Um, okay. and it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's been a big day, so let's <laughs> see how it goes. Doing lots of press or uh, are you nearly on the other um, side? I actually have had a day. I'm finally landed at my parents' house after like, uh, you know, a lot of traveling with the movie. So I've had a full parent day, which is <laughs> tiring in itself. But yeah. Fair enough. At what point did it start percolating? So when we spoke for the assistant, for example, was Royal Hotel uh, creeping around your your brain already? Uh, probably not. It probably took a few months after that. Um, but I was, yeah, I don't know. I was chatting to someone from Seesaw who I met. The, they are a British company, but they have an arm in Australia. And hmm. they were, I met them at the Berlin Film Festival with the assistant. And they asked me if there's something I would like to do in Australia. And I kind of had this idea in the back of my mind this documentary I'd seen called yeah. Hotel Cool Party about two Scandinavian backpackers working in an outback pub. And I kind of had been 
like moving around in my brain, but I was probably a little too afraid to admit I wanted to make it at that point. It took a few months for me to kind of get brave enough to, you know, like talk about it, I think, and, and suggest it or pitch it to Seesaw, I guess, um, okay. which I did a few months later or six months, maybe a year, almost a year later. Um, and then when someone there got excited about it, then I kind of got into the kind of weeds of it, how we, what we would do to kind of adapt it or how, what, what I'd kind of do in what story I wanted to tell essentially. What was the, the barrier you had to overcome? You say you were a little afraid of making it um, a reality. I think there's something about the documentary. There's some really kind of gross behavior in it. And maybe there was some fear on my part of taking that on and that kind of voice of, these kind of dudes, these Aussie men, and their kind of their kind of speech patterns. I, maybe I just thought it was something I wouldn't be able to crack, or that I wasn't the right person to take on. So I, I think I thought about the idea of bringing on a co-writer, and then I think, in that sense, figured, oh, if I had my friend Oscar, he lives in regional Australia, he's more tapped into that kind of kind of like um, I don't know those sort of uh, those those men, I guess. Uh, I could get him, and we could kind of build it together. Maybe there's something in the in just a I don't know. For some reason, I'm also just an anxious person, so I guess anything <laughs> pitching anything <laughs> makes me anxious. So yeah. Fair enough. So are you you're the sort of person who has one thing that you're working on, and you're 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 working your way towards that, and that is your goal, or do you have several things on the go at one point, and then you're you you, you choose one to commit to, essentially, or one chooses itself for you to commit to. Yeah, I generally have one thing, and I think I was already working on something else when Seesaw approached me. And I think the key with that was they sent like three people to speak to me. You know, th- they, I, they needed to meet with their head of development in the UK and the head of development in Australia and the head of, you know, like all these different people from Seesaw. And I think by the time they just wore me down, <laughs> by the third meeting, I was like, all right, fine, fine. There's this film I couldn't, I could maybe make, you know. But I think, it, you know, at first I'm like, I'm always a little, I mean, it's, it's, it's always tough to come, kind of say, oh, this is what I want to do and be really confident in that because I never really know. It takes me a minute to figure out if the idea works, if it has legs, if it sustains itself over 90 minutes, you know, if I can see, if it should be for me, you know, yeah. all those sort of questions rattle around. But this one, I mean, I knew Julia Garner could could play the lead and that was the real draw. It was like, I can work with Julia again yeah. and that would be lovely and that would be safe, you know, in knowing what her strengths and knowing our dynamic, we could kind of do it together, which would be a kind of incredible thing. So that kind of gave me the confidence, I think, to eventually just pitch because I was like, oh, you know, me and Julia, workplace, you know, we've done this before, we can do it again, a little bigger, a little wilder this time, you know. I, I, um, I yeah. always love when a director finds their muse, finds the, the actor who is going <laughs> to you know, be in all their movies or pretty much all their movies, you know. So yeah. is is Julia the Bruce Campbell to your Sam Raimi or the, the John Wayne to your John Ford? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I hope we can keep working together. It's funny, though. I feel like I don't want to keep making the same films. Or I think I have to, like, the next thing, I really have to blow it up. If I'm going to use her again, we have to think of different what user. It's such an awful way to put it. Sorry, but work with her again. I think we have to She has a choice in this matter. She has a choice. <laughs> yeah, he has agency, I promise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. But I definitely, we really get along and it's really special. You know, it's really lovely. So, yeah. How did you pitch it to her? Yeah. I know. I think I just sent her the script. I think partly, and I don't share much with the, her while I'm writing. I do in sort of very vague, I'm even chatting to something about her, something with her now, really vague in a broad way. But I kind of want to just present her with something so she gets it. So then I can kind of, then she can kind of talk about her, give me notes or her ideas on it. But I kind of like to give her the 
nut it all out first and then hand it to her. So I, I'm pretty sure I didn't even pitch. I just, she just had to read the script for page one and figure it out, you know. She just um, turned yeah. up one day on set. <laughs> what, what, what am I doing? What am I doing here? It's like, just stand no, I there. I believe she read it before. Okay. Good. <laughs> I hope she did. <laughs> anyway. um, obviously, there are thematic links and connections between this and The Assistant. It's a very, very different movie for, for, for a lot of obvious uh, reasons. Mm. But was that something that you wanted to explore? You were talking there about... One of the things that, that that slightly scared you about the documentary was this gross behavior of these, you know, I guess, bloody blokes, you know. And was that something that there, there's, a, there's a connection there clearly between that and the assistant and how how women, you know, navigate that and negotiate that? Uh, uh, was that something that you wanted to continue to explore? I think so. I mean, it's different. I mean, the system was very like a systemic issue yep. we're getting at and trying to highlight. And this one's kind of a cultural issue and a cultural drinking problem. But I, I, I'm, I don't like saying that because I don't think it's a particularly uniquely Australian problem. But as soon as I say it's cultural, people assume it's. A, I'm saying it's Australian. But I think it's sort of that kind of behavior that happens in all bars and pubs at, at certain points in the night. And you know, I don't think it's. So it's a difficult yeah. one to kind. of Remote places where there's literally nothing else to do but go to the pub and drink. Well, a little, but it also happens in, you know, Manhattan and at the, you know, whatever the, wherever the dudes work, you know, if if finance bros are are capable of the same stuff, like that kind of gross, um, kind of very misogynistic kind of, you know, behavior kind of pops, you know, rears its head sort of everywhere. So it kind of was, and that kind of behavior that doesn't cross the line, but makes you feel uncomfortable as a specifically, I mean, I come at it as a woman in that space. Yeah. Um, and just not unsure. I can't really speak up because he hasn't really done anything wrong, but it, it's making me feel awful <laughs> and scared, quite frankly. And so it, that kind of gray area of, of not being sure exactly if, you know, how to respond to something. And and it, when it's sort of a larger issue, like a cultural issue or a systemic, it's kind of what I seem to have do in <laughs> like high life. I don't know. Sorry. It's like I'm having like now <laughs> figure out what my thing is. And people keep talking about microaggressions and, you know, kind of close-ups and moments and glances and looks and, you know, that sort of thing and amplifying that or highlighting that for an audience. Kind of moments that often go um, get missed in a kind of in life. I kind of pick out, I guess, and sort yeah. of highlight in my work, I guess. Was that stuff you go on to set knowing that you're going to want to capture and to accentuate, or is that stuff you find in the editing process? Everything I do is very precise, mostly because my budgets are so small that my <laughs> shooting days are so limited that I have to be so specific about what, what I'm getting. So I very clearly map it out, and it's all very I, – I storyboard things with just little doodles mostly. I actually had a storyboard guy for this one. But – um. Yeah, I I don't know. I, it is planned. I, it's sort of like there's something in the documentary. The documentary is clearly shot in wide shots, and but there's tiny moments in that documentary that really stung, and that I thought were worth unpacking a little and um, diving into. And so that to me was, I guess, the interesting part for me in in taking in making it into a fiction film. It's a very unsettling movie, and in, in a lot of ways, you have a lot of scenes where there's a lot of stuff creeping under the surface, and you have this 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 thread that runs through the movie of where 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 these guys look at you know look at Julian they look at Jessica and they look at you know, Hannah and Liv as theirs as something to possess and it's really unsettling was that something that you was that something that was in the documentary that you wanted to develop or was that something that you you brought to it as as well 
I think it's in the documentary, but it's also just in the concept of two foreign women, the only women yeah. in town, essentially, which is a big thing. The only world's fresh, especially fresh, new fresh meat. Um, and just the idea of the competition of who gets who gets them first and kind of what that brings out in that in the clientele and kind of, you know, the race to get their attention. All the men we, I mean, in kind of writing the characters, we were very aware that each one of them is trying to connect with these women. They're failing miserably at it, but they're all trying yeah. to get their attention and to get their love essentially. As, um, and it's just kind of, you know, whether it's through alcoholism or just misplaced aggression or whatever it is, they just can't figure it out, you know? Um, so that became kind of the way, the way into those men essentially. And what about Julia and Jessica? together because that again is a huge difference between this and the assistant which you know which was this claustrophobic very intense movie focused specifically really on one character and now you have this 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 pairing this friendship yeah. which is put under intense strain i know i mean i so here's a like i mean yeah people were quite critical of people would say to me about the assistant why doesn't she have any friends you know and so that partly i was like in doing this oh we can give her a friend that's going to be fun and like figuring out who her friend was was the challenge and how to bring someone into Julia and I are so close. And the biggest challenge was how do we find someone who's not immediately going to feel left out and threatened by how close we are, who's going to fit into our little group and, you know, turn our duo into a trio in that way. So we found, I, I saw Jess's stuff, but I thought she was too, um, like she's very serious and I was a bit worried that she's sort of brilliant, but not loose enough to play live and, but when I met her immediately on Zoom or something, she was so goofy and lovely and warm and felt like our people and felt like we could get along with her and like and grounded as well. Like you meet a lot of these Hollywood people and they're a bit, you know, whatever. But she seemed like a real human being, which was really wonderful. Um, so, yeah, so I, I thought they would get along and that was sort of the biggest thing to me is like make sure she gets along with Julia and she fits and that and then it will all kind of come together. And that worked so well. They got along so well. They were trapped together in the outback for five weeks. So they needed to get along. Um <laughs> but yeah, no, they had a great time, I think, by the end. They were freaked out in the beginning, but by the end they didn't want to leave. So that was really lovely. So it it wasn't I mean, I, I know that I've I've read other interviews with you and I know that Wake and Fright was uh was a big touchstone for you. And um which is an, an amazing movie, but was making this a sort of wake and fright type experience. I imagine things yeah. have moved on since since then. A little. I mean, I don't know. It was pretty scary and pretty hard and pretty, um, yeah. We walked away, my cinematographer and I walked away on the last day feeling like we'd been just <laughs> completely, just, you know, torn to shreds by just how exhausted we were and how hard it was. But um no, I mean, yeah, it was, we had good people. We had a good, all the, the cast were amazing. And we found some really great, you know, locals to play the barflies and really a wonderful group. So we were very lucky. It wasn't, we didn't live it in that way. But the girl, the girls did live, the place we put them up, when, when we shot the exterior locations, we were in the middle of nowhere. And the places we had to stay, we were literally staying in pubs. So they literally lived the movie for a good two weeks when we shot the exteriors. So they had a real taste of it, that's for sure. Did you with deliberately withhold uh, some of the, the the sweat? Because I think Wake and Fright is the sweatiest movie of yeah. all time. Well, we shot in winter, uh, so and our film's set in winter. Everyone's saying it's winter, so it's yeah. not as sweaty. Which is, but I mean, that was mostly due to Julia's availability. I mean, we could only get her in winter, so we had to shoot in winter. But it was also freezing, and we were actually making it look warmer than it was. Like it was actually really cold, and that was the biggest hurdle. To yeah, it was that everyone was absolutely, absolutely freezing and blue in the face. It was that cold. Oh so it was one of those 
yeah, it was a real Aussie winter, really, um, really so, tricky. So that uh, scene in the creek where they're, they're swimming in the creek, was that like properly? We took them, we took them north. That was specifically, we took them north to Darwin to shoot that because we knew they would freeze to death if they did that. So that was the only t- day that we shot elsewhere was, was that one so that we could kind of keep them warm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the rest of it was cold. And that was, I think, the biggest shot for them. It's like, oh, Australian winters can be this cold. Yeah, they really can. But, yeah. <laughs> Uh, regular listeners to this podcast will know that I'm obsessed with Australia's um, snakes and <laughs> there's a snake in this movie um, what was that snake? I, I, I'm, I have to ask about the snake I don't know but they sent me all these photos of snakes and I had to pick what I thought was the scariest looking and I, I sent it around to a bunch of friends and just got everyone to like a poll I did a poll of all my friends like which of these scares you the most and, and the one we picked was the one that got the most votes I think but it wasn't a it wasn't a dangerous snake but Dan and the Dan sweet Dan Henschel actually spent a day with the snake getting to know the snake and he and the snake hang out so that he could kind of feel comfortable with it on the set. So he did a lot of stuff with the snake that I never saw. So I, I <laughs> luckily missed the snake wraps all day. He now lives um, with the snake. The snake is his yeah. pet. They go on adventures exactly. together. I'm going to be surprised. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's amazing. And there were, no, there were no snake experiences otherwise off camera. You weren't beset by snakes or besieged by snakes or there were no snakes creeping on the set. I'm just, I'm, I'm concerned about the snakes, basically. No, but we, we saw, honestly, the waterhole where they jumped in, that waterhole, there was all these signs about crocodiles there. We, the beach, there was all this talk of sharks there. There was, you know, it was pretty, we had a kangaroo incident, a lot of kangaroos um, almost hitting car. Someone swerved to hit a, not hit a kangaroo and rolled their car on the shoot. So we've had, a, there was a lot of wildlife related, uh, you know, issues, but luckily everyone's safe. <laughs> They're yeah. telling us to get out. We're not meant to be in their, in their area. This is, this is their domain. Get out, get out. Exactly. Stay in the yeah, cities. Yeah. That's, that's the way, that's the way to go. Uh, I wanted to ask about, uh, backstory and the backstory of, <laughs> of, of Liv and of Hannah and how much you had sketched that out or, or whether that was something that you really fleshed out with, you know, Julia and Jessica. Jess and I had a lot of chats about it, um, but it wasn't, I get it, I don't know, it's something I get in trouble for. Some people want more backstory, not everyone, but there's a lot of people that argue for that. And I, to me, it was important that these women in this film are just saying no to bad behavior and it doesn't yeah. matter where they've come from or what they've escaped or what happened to them before. What happens is not okay, you know, yeah. regardless of their backstory. So to me, that was really important that we set it in the present and it stayed in the present. But I also think those big trips and those and that drinking is often it's connected to like wanting to kind of get let something go, you know, whatever that is from your past. But in that at that age, everything can feel that traumatic. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was that kind of rite of passage trip where it's the first time away on this big adventure and, you know, they got a lot to work through and I remember being really drunk and crying in a hostel in like Lithuania when I was 23 and not being able to stop. I, nothing really had happened, but at that point in my life, everything feels huge. You know yeah. what I mean? So it never felt like we had to kind of tap into exactly what that was, but we needed to know they were on, they were, they were on the journey away from something, you know, trying to find, find themselves, I guess, in that way. I, and I'm going to let you go, but I, I just want to ask about what's next. Have you, have you, have you committed to something or is there, is there something that's, that's is there a clear vision of where you're going now? No, I mean, this is my first day off in months. So I haven't Oh my really, God, I'm so sorry for dumping an of, interview on you on your day off. I feel no, horrible. It it's fine. Uh, but I, I, need, I like to kind of read a lot and talk to people about what I've made. And then I kind of 
figure out what I need to do next. I, but I do need to, I kind of started working on something before this, before I released this film, but now I feel like I kind of need to wait a beat, see how this lands and then kind of rejig whatever my ideas were into something else. I, I don't know. Hopefully Julia will be in whatever I do next. We'll see. She um, will be. She will not, be. She's yeah, going she's to not be. Even, she said no. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so wait for that. Um, no, but we'll see. Uh, and yeah, I'll see. I don't know. Uh, hopefully, but um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But then I get, I'm getting things. Scripts are coming. There's things. I don't know. We'll see. There's That's things all. on the horizon. Things percolating, yeah. which is which is things. good to see. All right. Well, excellent. Well, hopefully, we'll have you back here in in three years' time. Two, three years' time. Yes. Kitty Green, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lee, for your time. Thank you so much. Lovely to chat. See you later. Cheers. Okay, that was Kitty Green. Now let's delve deep into this week's reviews. Should we start with the Royal Hotel? Sophie, tell us about the Royal Hotel. Did you like it? I absolutely loved it. As you said there before you introed Kitty, um, yeah, it's about a pair of friends, um, Liv, which is Jessica Henwick, and Hannah, which is Julia Garner. They run out of cash and they head off to the Royal Hotel, which is in the very bleak, dusty outback, I'm guessing, of Australia. Um to work in the pub for a guy called Billy, played by Hugo Weaving, who I barely recognised with a <laughs> great big bushy beard. Great um, big bushy beard. <laughs> and they're working there behind the bar and it's, a, like you said, a small rural community. Um, we're back to the dwarves again. It's a mining community. <laughs> hi-ho! Hi-ho! Uh, <laughs> um, hi-ho! Yeah. <laughs> off to where we go! <laughs> Um, so many of the punters are men who work in the mines, etc. And basically they get there, they're working and tensions start to arise as the men who come to the pub kind of see them as sort of fresh meat. They even write that on the board outside the hotel at one point. Um, and they kind of strike up kind of relationships with a couple of them and um, they kind of have to deal with a lot of stuff that's thrown at them really rude stuff um, it's just sort of general harassment just really creepy stuff and sort of abuses of power and um, there's just a real tension in this film that is so brilliantly created by um, Kitty Green Um, it's only short it's 90 minutes and it's over before you even sort of realise it goes at such a pace and it builds such a great as I say tension between Liv and Hannah and the Mm. place that they're in and it's such a kind of unforgiving landscape and setting that they're in and you feel so uncomfortable for them the whole time Um, and I just had a real blast with it Um, it builds to a really interesting crescendo that will kind of shock you um, but also leave you sort of in a bit of a weird headspace I have to say but um I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I gave I, it four stars. I, I, yeah, I want to talk. We can't talk about it now, but I want to talk about the ending. I said this to yeah. Green. I want to talk about the ending of this movie with you, but I can't because this isn't a spoiler thing. And I want to talk about the final shot uh, yeah. and the ramifications of said final shot because I'm fascinated by yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I thought this was terrific. Um, it's from this great tradition, isn't it, of <laughs> thrillers where people go to Australia and fall foul of something, the landscape or... Um, in this case, the locals, but it doesn't quite do the things that you think a movie like, no. like this would do, um, and it doesn't necessarily hit some of the same areas that you would expect from a movie like this. No, um, and I think more power to his elbow for doing so. And you know, and we invoked Kitty Green and I, Wake in Fright, which is that amazing Ted Kotcheff 
movie, the sweatiest movie ever made. Mm. Uh, this isn't that, but it's it's got a particular type of oppression on its mind. Mm. Um, and all the guys in this are just different shades of awful. Absolutely. And Liv and Hannah, the sort of dynamic between them, it's such a good, I mean, it's not the only thing. It's, we've got three films out this week by female directors with female leads about female friendship and all of them are spot on in very different ways mm. and this one really evokes that sense mm. of your friends having your back even when you're kind of a bit mad at them and one friend yeah. who has to look after the other one and all sorts of stuff going on it just I, I really loved it and I really felt it was authentic and um, yeah as you say it doesn't go where you expect but the places it does mm. go are really really interesting absolutely so four stars in for the Royal Hotel Okay, then let's stick with that theme then about uh, movies about female friendships uh, undergoing stress and duress on holiday, uh, directed by a female director. <laughs> it is How to Have Sex, which is directed by Molly Manning Walker, who incredibly was the cinematographer on Scrapper. Yeah, so a real which talent. Was also fabulous. Helen. Yeah, she really is, yeah. and this also looks looks amazing. So it's basically about three teenage friends who go on their first kind of overseas holiday on their own. They're, what, 17? They're very excited to be yeah, off. Like fresh out of school. Fresh out of school. Very Actually waiting for their results, yeah. aren't they? They're waiting for their exam results. Fresh out of school, just excited to be kind of off the leash. They're determined to be adults. Um, our heroine, our kind of focus character is Tara, played brilliantly by Mia McKenna-Bruce. Um, but she's with Sky, played by Lara Peake, and M, played by Envid Lewis, all, both of whom very, very good as well. Um, and and they're just, they they have this sense of possibility. Anything is is possible. They are, they see themselves certainly as adults. They're ready to drink and have sex and live it up and and sort of, play out all of these kind of rights of adulthood as they mm. understand them. And, um, and you know, there are moments of absolute euphoria and moments of glorious friendship and moments of excitement and, you know, that feeling of being a teenager, of being on your own, of feeling like an adult, of feeling responsible and feeling like you can do anything and anything is possible. And it captures that super, super brilliantly. But it also captures the fact that you're not quite as in control as you maybe think you are. And as this film goes on, um, they, they make friends with this uh, bunch of people in the next room played by, there, there's Badger played by Sean Thomas, Paddy played by Samuel Bottomley and Paige played by Laura Ambler and this they form this kind of like sextet maybe six six people yes who kind of go out and they, they're heading, hitting all the parties they're hitting all the clubs together but the dynamics sort of aren't maybe quite as healthy as they could be and and Tara who is very flirtatious and very outgoing and utterly beautiful and yeah. just you know really determined to live it up isn't quite as experienced as she paints herself as, as she dresses like, and she's sort of, you know, trying to put on this this image that maybe she can't, she doesn't understand entirely and she isn't entirely in control of on the inside. And and you just see that dynamic play out. You just see these kind of power dynamics. You see these situations where she's not as comfortable as she pretends to be and she's kind of going along with things and she's not sure how she feels about some of the situations she's put yeah. in, some of the things she's seeing, some of the things she's doing. Um, and it's just a fascinating, fascinating look at, yes, you know, issues of consent and issues of, um, you know, interactions and, and uh, you know, sexual interactions and everything, but also just of being that age and trying to figure this big, huge stuff out when you think you're ready and maybe you're not quite as ready as you feel like you are and maybe other people are going to take advantage of that and maybe they don't even understand that they're taking advantage of that but that's what's happening. 
it's a really complicated film that just mm. looks very simple on the surface, I feel like. And and I thought it was extraordinary. Really, really extraordinary. Not a comfortable watch, not always an easy watch, um, but but really, really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And Molly Manning Walker, as you say, so feature debut, she's worked in cinematography. Mm. The kind of energy the sensory energy of yeah. this film just really grabs you from the start you can smell the the alco pops you can smell you can, it. Smell. You, can <laughs> you can feel the sun you can feel the headaches when they wake up in the morning when it cuts from the club to the like sun coming in the hotel room and you just you can feel like their heads pounding and they get straight back on it and like the noise of the clubs and just all of it and that it's it's shot so beautifully and you feel it feels very immersive mm. um, to the point, like you say, it can be uncomfortable at times, like how immersed you are in the story. Um, but it tackles some really tough stuff in a really um, nuanced and um, non-exploitative way, yeah. um, which will leave you. I I just kind of the credits rolled, and I just had to sit there for the whole. Mm. I couldn't get up after it. I just. It really sort of affected me. And um, it's just an absolutely wonderful film. I mean, it was our Alif Afghala. We've really backed this film and it absolutely deserves it. Yeah. Um, I really loved it. Really, really stunning. And I, I can't wait to see what both director and star do next because yeah. I think they're incredible talents. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So we gave this one a four. Is that right, Sophie? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Be a very but high four. Like me. Very high four. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, it sounds like you're arguing with yourself. You maybe want to give it a five. But <laughs> yeah. Next up, next up, next up, James. Hello, Chris. It's time for you to fill us in on your bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it is. Uh, this is the new film by Emma Seligman, who did uh, Shiver Baby. And it also stars that film star, Rachel Sennott, who co-wrote this with Seligman. Uh, this is a teen movie which, as many of you will know, is one of my chosen genres. Really I is. very much enjoy it. <laughs> and this is a glorious teen movie. And... <laughs> I think the best way to explain this before I tell you what it's about is the tone lands somewhere in between 10 Things I Hate About You and right. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And I think that's deliberate since both of those films have been cited as influences by Seligman. Uh, and it's glorious. And it stars uh, it stars Rachel Sennett as PJ and it stars the Bears, uh, A.O. Edabiri as, as Duncan. As Duncan, yes, that's right. <laughs> as Josie. And they are bottoms. And they are, they are the bottom of the social... Uh, ladder, you know, they're the least popular girls in school. They're, they're sort of referred to as, I think, was is it the ugly gays they are the referred to? Ugly, untalented gays. Ugly, untalented gays, yes. <laughs> they're two queer girls. They're not having the best time at school. So at one point, they come back from the holidays and due to a ridiculous misunderstanding, someone thinks they spent the summer in juvie. <laughs> so they decide to spin this into a, of course, as, as you would at school, by starting an all-female fight club. And they come to this club and they beat the snot out of each other. And it is, ridiculous as it sounds, it is funny, it is touching, it is utterly weird and completely bonkers in a way that, totally, it almost feels at points almost like you're watching an animation because some of it is so utterly absurd. Mm. And some of the things that even just go on in the background. So their their sort of uh, nemeses, if you will, are the football team who are naturally worshipped as heroes by the entire school. Everything they want goes. The football players incidentally never ever take off their football kids or their shoulder pads. <laughs> Not really explain why, but I love that about it. It's <laughs> utterly, utterly mad. Two brilliant performances. A. Edabiri, obviously brilliant in The Bear, but really, really, really good in this. Ruby Cruz is also good in this. Hazel, one of the friends and a number of yes, them, love another her. member of the club. Um, so much fun. 
so utterly bonkers and at times quite shocking. And I, I, mm. some people may take a little while to adjust to the tone because, as I was saying to Sophie earlier when we were talking about it, Scott Pilgrim is utterly bonkers, but the computer game imagery and stuff, I think, helps you realise that it's surreal and it's not it's not meant to be taken literally. This doesn't have any of that kind of furniture in it, but it is just as deranged. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The deranged but it's kind of, The derangement kind of creeps up on you. Oh, it does. Yeah, it really yeah, yeah. does. Because, you know, first of all, you, they're going around the school and, you know, the, the sort of star player on the football team is uh, as played by Nicholas Galitzine, who I think we last saw in that ridiculous net, um, red, prime, white, red white, and royal blue, where he was like playing the straight romantic lead, and he very, oh, very so. unstraight romantic lead, and and here he's playing this ridiculous man child who is the star of the football team, and he <laughs> and his picture is everywhere over the school, and at first you see a couple of them, and you're like, well, that makes sense, and then you see the sort of you know topless ones, and you see him painted uh, as as the creation of man and Michelangelo's <laughs> style, right? And it just kind of builds and builds and builds to, and you realize how much, much more and more and more ridiculous it gets yeah. until the final act, which is just insane mm. in the best possible way. Absolutely. <laughs> the, I mean, there's at one point the football is, um, football is, yeah. is that the right word? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I made them sound like I'm talking about Arsenal. Um, they're all sat at the table in the canteen and it looks like a Renaissance painting. It's like yes. the Last Supper. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, <laughs> the imagery in this is so great and you're right that it does take a while. You're kind of watching it and because it kind of looks like a conventional teen movie and they're talking about crushes and they go to a fair and then they, they're in school walking. You're like, okay, this I sort of know where I am. You don't. You don't know where you are because um, the tone is just so unserious the whole time. It never takes itself... Don't take any of it seriously. There are some emotional moments which come through and work well, but it really is silly and it just wants you to have a good time and yeah. not don't think too much about logic how, what, or plot. Set, what do you mean the setting of a fight club like what how does that stop them being expelled what do you mean don't worry about it yeah. <laughs> the timeline doesn't make no. much sense either And but I don't care no. I was laughing so hard at so much of yeah. this um, the characters are so brilliantly weird and original and different and there are shades of ten things I heard about you. Absolutely, that uh, that track around the school and all oh, the introduction, God, yeah. introduction to all the different cliques, that kind of yeah. thing. Mm. Um, but it's so much weirder and and tougher edged than yeah. that. Yeah, and Marshawn Lynch in this, who plays one of the yes. teachers, he feels ripped oh straight gosh. out of ten things, and he's great. And there's um, there's some quite intense violence. They start a fight club mm, yeah. and they, they don't hold back. Um, but I really love the fight scenes between them. I love seeing these girls like build up the courage to punch each other and take a punch and come into school and they've got a black eye and they've got a bloody nose and they don't care. And then it, as you, Helen says, it builds to a really, really fun final act that I just took the film to a whole another notch. Like it took it up a level for me mm. um, and felt quite cathartic in a way just to, to watch them getting stuck in to all this fighting. And um, yeah, I or Adebri is... So oh my god! Awkward. <laughs> I mean, if you ever watched a red carpet interview with her, she's absolutely great value. She always comes across really kind of odd and strange. Oh, she's a and, massive nerd for yeah, film and TV as well. Yeah, yeah, she always. She it kind of feels like she's channeling that a lot more closely in in the character of Josie, and it's really fun to see her just go she's, for that. She's amazing. It's a wonderful thing about her. I have no idea how old she is. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. it. Yeah. I think she's about twenty eight. We were just talking about this earlier. I mean, James, I think she's around twenty eight, maybe. It's just not what you expect on any level. I I, I loved it. Really, really, right. really fun. Sounds good. Sounds really, really good. Uh, four stars then, I'm guessing? Yes. 
more stars then for bottoms. And real quick, because yeah. both Helen and I have to uh, run, uh, there are two films that are on Netflix right now. One is Worth Your Time, Helen, and the other one is Pain Hustlers. <laughs> it's it's it. Look, it's okay. Pain Hustlers is basically about drug reps. So you've got Chris Evans playing a sort of established drug, drug rep for this company run by Andy Garcia. And Emily Blunt, who's this very down on her luck single mum, gets a job there and just flourishes and absolutely takes the whole company to a new level and, and you know pushes them all forward but they start to use less and less legal methods of pushing their mm. essentially fentanyl um to to patients who maybe could get addicted so this is directed by David Yates it's Ugh. look i thought it was actually fine uh, you know very good performances from the leads as you'd expect Catherine O'Hara no relation is also very good <laughs> in it as you would expect the problem for me is i watched dope sick which did exactly the same kind of story, but in far more depth, with far more nuance and at far greater length. Mm. So I watched this and it just felt a little bit flat and a little bit uh, glib as a result. Um, so look, it's it's fine. Uh, I thought I'm a little bit warmer maybe than our two-star review, but not a lot warmer. Two stars there for Pain Hustlers, but uh, Annette Benning. if we're going to stick mm. with the MCU, because everyone's in the MCU these days, uh, we've got uh, Marvel herself. That's right, we have. <laughs> it's easy to forget that, right? I, I, it's easy I to forget that Annette Benning was, was in like, wait, Annette Marvel. Benning? <laughs> well, she's kind of playing a superhero here as well. So Nyad is a, a biographical uh, drama film, which is based on the story of Diana Nyad, who is a swimmer, um, and Benning plays her, with Jodie Foster as her basically best friend and sort of coach, uh, Bonnie. It's a narrative version of of the story. So she tried to swim from Cuba to Miami over 100 miles of open water filled with sharks and jellyfish and very strong currents and just nightmarish stuff uh, when she was 28. And she failed and she essentially quit swimming uh, pretty much for years. And this is her coming back to it, deciding for her 60th birthday, no, she does want to do that swim after all. And, uh, and getting through sheer force of will and really some absolutely horrible uh, treatment of her nearest and dearest uh, setting out to do it again. It's. I thought it was fascinating because it absolutely does not flatter Diana Nyad. She, she comes across as unreasonable, difficult, prickly, obsessive, um, damaged. You get in to, to learn a little bit about her, her family and her background um, and yet insp- inspiring and incredible and really impressive. And I think for showing all the kind of warts and all side of this, it makes it so much more interesting as a film. Um, Jodie Foster is clearly having an absolute ball playing this. Again, very strong-willed former professional sportswoman who is... Um, who is also just a force of nature um, in her own very different way. And they're they're fantastic, fantastic on screen together. Uh, it has got some Oscar buzz and I can see yes. why, especially for Benning. Um yes. I, I thought I thought it was really, really entertaining. I did not expect to be as invested as, as I was in whether or not she would do this and how long it would take her if she if she could do it. Amazing. Uh, what do we give it? Three. Three stars, three stars then. So maybe the film doesn't quite sing, but the performances do? The form- performances definitely stand out. I mean, I'm, I'm maybe a bit warmer on the film than that, but uh, but yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, march into the offices and <laughs> storm the city. <laughs> I hope you wouldn't. Uh, that would be <laughs> yeah, outrageous, although I'm never there, so you can, you can have at it. Uh, three <laughs> stars then for Nyad. And that is it for the review section, but there's one more thing to come. One more little bonus 
which is Patrick Stewart. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, the great Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, if you will. Uh, he has his memoir out. It's called Making It So. It is a cracking read. It's an all good and evil bookstores right now. And uh, I went along to speak to him in a London hotel room a couple of weeks ago. And we had a good old natter about that and about his life and about all sorts of stuff. And the whole thing is going to be up as a special, an interview special. But I decided to include a little bit for you guys as well. So you're going to get about 10, 15 minutes of that now just to wet your whistle. Here he is, the wonderful Patrick Stewart. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the author of Making It So, a memoir, Patrick Stewart. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Chris. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Um, the last time we spoke, Patrick, was for this podcast about three years ago. And you told me that you were writing this memoir. You were right in the middle of writing it. That You had just finished, in fact, page 84. Oh, that wasn't three years ago. I must have been deliberately lying to you for some very good reason, which I seem to have forgotten. Yes, but you know, it's, it's that's okay, that's fine. But uh, but you were you were writing the uh, the moment in your life where you went to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, that you left Murfield, your your hometown, and you got on that train, and that's what you were about to write next. You were about to get to that point. Well, that's a quarter of the way only into the book. So I had another year of writing before I had finished. What was that experience like for you? Delving back into those, into those uh, childhood memories, into those memories of your youth? I never imagined that I would do it. Mm. Writing, while not being something that I was particularly drawn to, even though books were from the age of six, I discovered my local library at six years old, and they let me sign up for the um, the junior member of the library. Yes. Um, and I think the minimum age was usually eight, and I was only six. But they let me join up, and uh, that was where books became... Well, we had no television. We had no record player. Yeah. Uh, we only had a radio. Um, it, the, the books became my life, and, and indeed my education, which was very, very modest. Uh, but books helped a great deal. And when I was offered, I, I, I'd been offered twice before the opportunity to write a memoir. But in those days, uh, I was working. Yes. I was in, you, well, you can't write a book and shoot a television series at the same time. It's impossible. All you can do is shoot the television series and sleep. Nothing else. Yeah. And uh, that's that's what I explained. Then, out of the blue, my agent called me one day and said, uh, look, Patrick, um, I know you, you've said no about this, but you've had another very good offer from Simon Schuster, and um, they, they, they really would like uh, you know a memoir from you. He said, now, here's the reason I'm calling you. Uh, you're not going to work as an actor. There is no work. Yeah. It's not available. This was... 2020, start of COVID. And he said, so what are you going to do? You know, just keep doing your damn jigsaw puzzles, which I do do as a, as a little hobby. Excellent. Um, only of art, paintings. That's all I do. Okay. I'm obsessed with them. And um, I said yes. I thought about it for several days. Uh, I tried to project myself back into my early life. 
I had no experience and I hadn't read very many memoirs either. So it wasn't that I could say, oh, I know what the form is, I can do that. Yes. So I didn't know where to start. And uh, I was sitting in my study in Los Angeles one day uh, with my computer uh, still in front of me and thinking and thinking about what of my early life could I begin with? And there floated into my head a phrase, which was, to bottom field. Now, to bottom field is a Yorkshire expression. Yeah. And I thought, and that fired me up. Yeah. So the memory of, because I knew exactly what to bottom field was, even though, as I say in the book, there was no middle field or upper field. <laughs> it was bottom field, and that's where I began. And it's as though writing that and explaining what it meant crept open a window, and then another one, and then they opened a little bit wider, and then a door opened, and another door. That's what it felt like as my childhood, yes, specifically. Yes. My early, earliest memories of my brother and I being alone with my mother because my father was away helping to fight the Second World War. And um, I, I was leading a very happy and, and delightful life. Um, my cot was in my mother's bedroom. We lived in a one-up, one-down. It was mm -hmm. a very modest home. And uh, my mother used to lower the sides of the cot, and I could roll sideways out of my cot into her bed, and she would <laughs> grab me and cuddle me. And then we'd laugh and giggle, and she'd tickle me and all. Oh, it was heaven on a stick, beautiful. And, uh, and then um, my father came home from the war in 1945, August or September, and uh, our lives changed. Yes, and, and that is something that you don't shy away from in the book and you don't shy away from regrets or perceived mistakes in your life that is something that you very much embrace and i imagine that when you sit down to write a memoir that the the act of choosing what to write about is something that you think about a great deal and yes. and you could withhold an awful lot but but you don't you don't you talk about living with your your parents at the time when your your father who was in the grip of post-war PTSD and PTSD, he had it, it hit yeah. all kind of this weekend alcoholism that you that you talk about that mm -hmm. that afflicted him you talk about that and that I imagine that must have been difficult yes. to relive it it was difficult to write it yeah um and yet I knew that I had to because I was writing about my life and um, not every detail of it. You know, my first draft was 750 pages long. <laughs> we lost 300 of them. Yes. Sir. Um, but there were moments in my life, significant moments to do with my, uh, my childhood, my teenage years, my first becoming an actor, and so on and so on and so on. And uh, two, now three marriages. Knowing about the different important aspects of my life, and I could write about them, um, kept those gates open, and they never closed on me. And so I wrote too much, and then I had to 
he's back, he's back. And I had wonderful help from my sub-editors and uh, the publishers in general um, advising me, you know, what was not essential, what was not necessary. And it proved to be a profoundly enjoyable experience. It's a beautifully written book. Are, are you expecting, you talk about your childhood home, 17 Cam Lane, in you Murfield. Remember. Well, I I lived at seventeen myself. My my childhood home was a seventeen, so it it oh. it, uh, it 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 rang a bell with me. Uh, but are you expecting fans to turn up now in Murfield and do tours and and go past and 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 you know because it's there now. It's there. It's in the book for for all to see where you grew up. I would expect Ooh. certain fans might might show up and and take a look. No one has put that question to me before. Uh, and I've not even considered it. But you're right. I gave my address in Cam Lane, yeah. uh, and it's still there. I yeah. know. I've been back to look at it um, and say hello to the people who now live there who already knew that I had been a resident as a child. We left there when I was 15 uh -huh. and moved into a council house, which was luxury accommodation because it had an indoor bathroom. It had electric light everywhere. It had hot water, running hot water, uh, which we didn't have in Cam Lane. Um, <laughs> but I, I suppose oh, you're suggesting it might become a, a sort of a public place. And uh, I think a, a lucrative sideline is what I'm suggesting, Patrick. Oh, I think we could do a Patrick Stewart walking tour of Murfield. Oh, now would I do the, uh, conduct the tour? From time to time, if you're available. I would occasionally just pop up and yeah. uh, brighten things up a bit. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm sure I could find one of my ancient relatives who would be happy to <laughs> take over the job. That'd be that'd be one hell of a thing. Uh, was there a moment when you were writing the book? Was there a, a recollection, a memory that really surprised you? That 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 swam to the surface. Yes, it was um, when I. Uh, was cast in a film, the first film I'd ever been cast in. By the way, I loved films. I would go sometimes once, twice, if my pocket money would hold out, three times a week. <laughs> and um, it meant so much to me. But I had I'd worked for years as an actor, but never done a movie. Then I was cast in one. Yes. It was only half a day's work. And it was a film called Hennessy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the leading role in the film was played by an American actor, Rod Steiger. Now, what my agent didn't know was that when I was 13, I saw a film called On the Waterfront, <laughs> which had starred someone called Marlon Brando, yes. Rod Steiger, yes. um, uh, Eva Marie Saint played the female lead in it. Um, and who was the bad guy? What was his name? Oh, Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb played mm -hmm. the bad guy, yes. And um, uh, anyway, Rod was, uh, it was only half a day's work. He was very kind to me. And there'd been a problem about them releasing him before they'd done my coverage and saying, oh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll somebody will read in. And uh, he said, what the fuck do you think I am? Patrick's been doing off-camera lines for me. I do them for him. Yeah. You fucking idiot. And he really bent right. And I'm saying, it's okay. It's okay. It doesn't matter. And uh, anyway, 
we, we did. And he stayed behind and he fed me my cues. And he did them for real, just like he'd done them on camera. Yes. And afterwards he said, I'm sorry, I apologize like that. You, you, that happens from time to time. But he said, uh, uh, were you having lunch? And I said, oh, do we get lunch? Because I'd never been on a movie set before. And he said, oh, yeah, it's, it's over there, that van over there. You can get what you want. This is my trailer. Bring it back there and we'll have lunch together. Wow. Rod Steiger. Rod Steiger. Was inviting for my, me for lunch. And then he said to me, he gave me one of the most important notes I've ever had about filmmaking. At the end of dinner, when they called him, he had more work to do. I was done uh-huh. for the day. And he and he said to me, just one thing. Um, you must remember, if you're filming, that the camera photographs thoughts. And I've never forgotten it. Because Rod Steiger told me, and I knew when I went back and watched his films, I knew exactly what he meant. Yeah. Because when he was saying to Brando, "Take the job," yeah, take the job, yeah, uh, you could see what he was thinking. Yes. And it colored his language, colored his words, and and it was a a, a critical piece of uh, acting advice that I received. Okay, that was Patrick Stewart. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be bringing you the show live, but pre-recorded, from Leeds. Yes, that's right. We're going to be at Leeds next week, uh, Thursday, the 9th of November. I think there's still some tickets still available. Go to the really interesting URL, store.leedstrinity.ac.uk and then go to conferences and then choose empire podcast and tickets are just 10 pounds so come along and see us on the night it's going to be a lot of fun i'm hoping to be joined by maybe a couple of the people who are in this room right now we shall see we shall see but it's going to be absolutely cracking and there's going to be a couple of other guests on that as well some pre-recorded interviews with guests including nia da costa the director of the Marvels. So that is one to look out for. But anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. It is goodbye to Sophie Butcher. Goodbye. It's goodbye to James Dyer. Goodbye. And it's goodbye to Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm going to Yemen. <laughs> can, can I stay with you when we get to Yemen? <laughs> One Yemen road, Yemen. (laughs) I think. Something like that. Oh, man. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.